Our text is Nahum chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4 as we look at a sermon I've titled Armageddon. We've been a couple of weeks away from this study, so we're getting right back to it now. But um, we were on vacation, and you know, some people t- today they say the Bible has mistakes or it's not preserved and something like that. And that, that, that is wrong. Even there are Christian colleges that teach the Bible's not preserved. It is. God said it was, so it's preserved, okay? Word for word preserved. But you know, sometimes just practical things can teach you that it is more dependable than anything else. How many know that the Bible is more accurate than modern day GPS systems? You find that out on trips, okay? You find that out on trips. We were in Blairsville, Georgia, and we one day was going to take the mountain, go up over the mountain, down the other side to the Lanaga. When we got to the other side, and that's what my wife was really wanting to go there. So we did go by GPS, and it got us there, amazingly. But when we got there, the first thing she wants me to do is stop and get her high blood pressure medicine refilled. And I've told her, going around those narrow mountain roads, and I like, I like to feel like I'm in Indianapolis 500, you know, when I go around those things. And, uh, but I told her, I drive by faith, not by sight, okay? And so, she knew that going in. All right, let's read here in our text. Verse 3, here of Nahum, chapter 2. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches on the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. And let's pray. Father, this is your word. Now as we come to it, I pray that you'd help us to rightly divide it. Make it clear. Make it understandable to everyone in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, last time when we looked mainly at verse 3, we saw the present-day application of this message as you get down near the time of tribulation. And, and we looked in Revelation 19, verses 16 through 21. We saw the kings of the east as, as, as they're coming against Israel there. And, and by the way, we, we look at the day of Armageddon. Actually, when we say that, Armageddon is a campaign. Understand, it's a campaign because the armies of the east have been going for one year, one month, one day, one hour, the Bible tells us. So we know that's a military campaign. It's just not a one-day thing. But they're headed towards Israel. All the armies of the world now are gathering there in Israel. Verse 3 also spoke of the chariots with flaming torches, showing the shooting forth of the arrows that they would have and 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 doused, of course, in the field that they would have of that day, and, and burning of the buildings and the other things that would be on the inside to try to burn this down in Nineveh, as all of Nineveh is completely destroyed. But it's interesting to me that we live in a day today, in this uh, day in which 20, the 20th and 21st centuries, I would say, 
we've had a lot of preachers that tell us that this is referring to, in verse 20, uh, verse 4 of Nahum here, chapter 2, it's referring to automobiles jostling one against another. But I have reason to doubt that is the case. One thing we see is that the chariots are equipped as we're told of the day of their preparation. In other words, they're being prepared, they're being equipped for a day of war, for a day of fighting. They're equipped for a day as this. So I actually think that instead of automobiles, when you're looking at this, is really looking at things like tanks, other vehicles of war, that would be used in that time, wartime vehicles. Especially when we think of the Valley of Armageddon. I mean, 200 million from the Eastern armies, besides all the other armies of the world, gathered in that place. And you've got tanks, you've got all kinds of military vehicles. Certainly, certainly they will be there, uh, filled in that place. But now as we jump the years of time from the day of Nineveh, we see the armies of the world. Now they are converging, instead of in Nineveh, they're converging in Israel. As the campaign of Armageddon is about to draw to a close. And there is a world war coming on, but one which converges only in Israel. And for the Jew. It looks completely hopeless. The Lord has given them a remnant of them safety in a place that he has set aside. But for the most part, they're going to lose all that it looks to them. All is hopeless. Then Jesus comes. And that makes the difference. And so Jesus comes, and and, and when he comes, certain defeat is turned into absolute certain victory. Now, it's easy today for us to think of Israel as being surrounded without hope. And we can enter into problems of our own lives and think that, hey, we are surrounded and without hope. The numbers are against us. Even in this time in which we live, we see a daily turning. It seems like more and more Churches are going to another direction. I talked with a pastor the other day, or an uh, evangelist now, but I was talking with him the other day. He says, churches I used to preach in at one time, I can't go back anymore. I, I just can't preach there anymore. And, and he says, they've gone the way of the world and the flesh and the devil. And as they turn to the contemporary and, and they turn to the, uh, the, the things of the devil, they also turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and anything goes. And that's what happened in Israel in the Old Testament era. They corrupted the house of God. But in Christ, we know we have a greater than he, uh, is he that is in us and he that is in the world. In Christ, one can make a thousand flee and ten can make ten thousand flee. It is interesting that we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The idea of in time of need, by its Greek construction and so forth, in which it was originally written, is at the very last moment. Even at the last moment, he can come and deliver you. If you walk in righteousness, you walk in true holiness, you can rest in peace knowing that you have the good hand of the Lord with you. May I add that you can not only rest in the place where you are, but you can also know that that's the safest place that you can be. Sheltered in the arms of Jesus, I'm safe forevermore. That's true for all of us in Christ. And it can be true for you. Today we think that we are so educated and civilized. But we hear from Hollywood to Congress and in the street people calling for ripping uh, babies from people's arms. Harassing them in restaurants and rioting and attacking in the streets. Going after those in authority. Yelling the most vulgar of words in the public fanfare. And then you hear the so-called unbiased media. You know, I think if they had a joke of the year, that would be it. Unbiased media. That would make it. That would be number one by far. And then we see the gutter language of the slime pits of immoral society. And we wonder... What good is education and, and, and things of that nature if there's not wisdom and morality to go with it? You educate a murderer, and he goes from using knives and, and guns to using bombs and nuclear things. You train them in technology, and it ends up being used to make drugs, sell harlots, and promote the filth of all kinds throughout the internet to try to infect your children. As Christians, we must understand that our life is in the daily warfare. This life is the life of warfare. It's when Jesus comes back that we leave the war. But till then, there's a warfare against Satan. There's a warfare against sin. And my friend, we've got to continue to stand. Quit standing up, on the other hand, for what pleases the flesh. Quit standing up for what... (sighs) Your children want to say, well, I want to do this. I want to do that. And you know it's wrong. You're a Christian parent. Can I say something that's very bold? God actually put you in charge of the home, especially dads, not your children. Well, you don't know. If we do that, boy, as soon as they leave my house, they're going to leave everything's right. If they're wanting to do those things, they're going to leave what's right when they leave your house. 
So why do you provide for them to go to those places? Why do you provide for them to be infected with the doctrines of devils? So don't do that. Just simply don't do it. Our weaponry is far different than the world. For the weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then he tells us of that armor we're to put on. And some of those things are the word of God. Put on the armor of the word of faith that is acting upon the word. Knowing doctrine and then acting upon of the gospel of prayer. Leading others to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. We find here in our text, that the fir trees are shaken. That reminds us of a tree that's standing strong and tall. But they give way under assault. And you get away, you may be standing strong and tall for the Lord right now, but you get away from your walk with God, you get away from walking in holiness and, and righteousness, you get away from those things, and eventually you're going to give way to the world the flesh, and the devil. And you'll lead a defeated life and a life that will be ashamed at his appearing. Today's technology is not evil in and of itself, and you just heard that from my lips. Today's technology is not evil in and of itself. But the heart of man is desperately wicked. Jeremiah seventeen nine tells us that. It says, the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? And it's interesting by that phrase, who can know it? The idea is that you take all the learning of science, math, everything else, all the learning of all man combined, and all of it together cannot discover the depths of the depravity of our hearts. We're depraved people, saved if you're saved by the grace of God. And so, you take all that together, verse 4 shows us then what happens when unredeemed men are using technology and govern technology. The abominable increase with what man has been provided. He said the chariots rage in the streets. They jostle against one another. And it's interesting that it uses the phrase shall rage. You know that word means to be bright, to be shining, to be splendid. It was actually a Hebrew word that was used to glorify God. And, and, and has the idea behind that it, glorifying God. It's a hallelujah towards God. It was an idea of being famous, bright, radiant. The chariots of Nahum's day were fast for their day, but their speed would not be the light, the glorious that this word describes. The brightness. 
It would not be like when, when, when a tank or something of that nature shoots off and, and, and you see the brightness and the booming and the loudness going around and other cannons and things firing off. You don't see that in that day. And that was the only words they had because they didn't know what they were in those days. Those were the only things they had to describe what it was. And so it, it was as a brightness. The chariots of Nineveh's day were great for war, but it's not going to uproot the cedars in their tallness and in their strength and their hold to the ground. The chariots as flaming torches and, and moving like lightning. Using the word like is a symbolic word. It would be something in that day of Nineveh would be greatly exaggerated to use that word in that day. Nineveh that day was greatly destroyed. But it wasn't by man. Man came in back after God did his work. And finish the job. But they had such high walls going around Nineveh. It was so well protected. The armies could not penetrate them. God sent a flood of waters out there in the middle of nowhere. And it brought down the walls. And they were able to go within the city. And with their flaming arrows shoot. And bring out. Burn down anything that would burn. And they did. They did. But I find it interesting. Alexander the Great would ride with his armies over the very place where Nineveh was located 300 years later. And as he rode over that sand, he did not know that lying somewhere beneath there's at one time a city called Nineveh that was the number one power of the world. Did not know it. It was gone. It was forgotten. When God does a devastation, it's a complete work. And he did that against Nineveh. You know what? That's kind of like the man in hell, is it not? Who will soon be forgotten by all. Many of you have been to the funerals that I've preached and you've heard me say, you're either here to say goodbye or I'll see you later. See, if you're in Christ in heaven, we have reunion. The man in hell is even forgotten by his family because there's no reunion even if the family's in hell. They're tormented day and night forever and ever and never remembered again. And just as Alexander rode over the sands that covered Nineveh, not knowing he was run, riding over that great place that was a, such a great place at one time. The man in hell is completely forgotten. Oh, if you're not sure if you died today, that heaven's your home, I hope that you will make sure today. Now I say that to get to this point, jumping over the centuries of time. We're looking at the tribulation hour. 200 million soldiers of the kings of the east are marching towards Israel. The Antichrist, he has his armies in their place. Some of the rest of the nations are gathered there. Coalitions are gathered together. Many are there. 
Now, I don't know how many are there. I just know what the Bible tells us one army contains. But I do know when Jesus comes back, the Bible tells us they all unite against him. I want to share some scriptures from Revelation. First in Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. As they reunite to fight against Christ, it says, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it to the great winepress of the wrath of God. Then the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. Now you can see, with all these armies gathered together, tanks, modern uh, motorized vehicles, the cannons, of, and all the other things of war. Yes, you can see that they would jostle against one another, and they fight him who appears in the sky. There's something about the brightness of that coming that when the clouds roll back and they see Jesus, and they begin to unite to fight against him. We're told that here that blood flows to the horse's bridle uh, for a space of 1,600 furlongs. Somebody say, how long is that? It's been estimated anywhere from 160 to 200 miles. For me, I don't know for sure how long that is. But it says the blood would flow to the horse's bridles. They said, do you really believe that? Well, there are several people say, well, you know, I believe it will do it in parts. Others say, well, I believe it's the whole thing. You know, I really don't know. That's not going to change my belief in Christ. But I do know this. He created the heavens and the earth just by speaking them into existence. What would be so hard for blood to flow for that distance at the level of the horse's bridle? There'd be no, no trouble whatever. That's not too much for him. In Revelation 16, verses 16 through 21, it also addresses this Armageddon war. Listen as I read. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. And the seventh angel sounded out, uh, poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Although he hasn't spoken the first word to bring the blood out, you already know it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, that is Jerusalem, and the cities of the nations New York City, D.C., London, Moscow, and on you can go around the world. Falling. And they fell. And the great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. You'll read about that in Revelation 17 and 18. That is Rome. And every island fled away 
Cuba, Hawaii, Japan, and on you go around the world with the islands. And he adds, and the mountains were not found. Mount Everest, the Swiss Alps, the Rocky Mountains, they're gone. They're gone. Some may say, well, I doubt that. You doubt a God who can create the heavens and the earth by merely speaking them to existence? How intelligent is that? And there fell upon men a great hell out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent. I'm told that's anywhere to 60 to 100 pounds. And, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. That's what the world is saying. But there's also the same event, a view from heaven. That's in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Listen as I read there. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Oh, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey to pay our penalty. But when he's coming back, he's on that great white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. Understand, even with blood flowing to the horse's bridle, an eternal lake of fire, all of that, God is absolutely just. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He said he was the truth. Then in John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is true. And so we continue to read here. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, white and clean. That's the saved. That's we who know Christ is our Savior. Following him in garments white and clean. You know what? When the war is over, our garments will still be white and clean. We're not doing the fighting. We're just riding behind him. He'll be doing the speaking. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That's when the blood flows to the horse's bridle. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of horses, and the flesh of them that sat on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, that sat on the horse, 
and against his army. Oh, that army, everything, it won't touch us, and it won't touch Jesus. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which was, uh, which, uh, by which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. The spoken word, Psalms 33, he spoke the worlds into existence. He'll speak this destruction. And notice he says, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. That word filled is a Greek word that has the idea of they gorged themselves. As hard as that sounds, and that does sound hard. I admit it sounds hard, but it's true. As hard as that sounds, what I want you to understand, that's only the vestibule of hell. It's like standing out there in the vestibule. You're not in the building. You're not in here. But yet you're aware of what's here. Just looking through the window. The window of hell is going to be the tribulation when the blood flows to the horse's bridle. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And it was so important that he, two verses later, verse 5, he repeats it again. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that he would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But because he said all men doesn't mean all men are saved. It means he gives you a free will to accept or to reject. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, it says that he commands all men, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because there's a day which he, in which he will judge the world. And you'll judge it by Jesus Christ, he says in verse 31. The one who died for our sins and was buried and rose from the dead. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's kind of like the days of Noah. When God appeared to Noah and he found grace, God says, I'm going to give him another 120 years. The world was ready to be destroyed then, but God, His grace, gave him another 120 years. Look, this world is ready to be destroyed now. Tribulation is ready now, but God, His grace, is giving an opportunity for people still to get saved. But once that time point passes, it will be too late if you're without Christ, especially when you had an opportunity to be saved. Notice what I read from this final portion in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Books, plural, has everything uh, in your life, every thought, Every intention in your heart, every deed, every word that you've ever spoken, it's all in those books. But then there's another book, the book of life. 
I find it interesting when he says he will not blot out your name out of the book of life. I believe that Jesus Christ, the day you were born, the moment you were conceived, I think from the eternity past, your name was in the book of life. But if you die without Christ, your name is blotted out. He gave you the benefit of the doubt and you passed it up. And so he says, and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. Oh, people may not see it now, but they'll know everything then. According to their works, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now my friend, the second death. You know, even the first death is not talking about your physical death. It's talking about your spiritual death. You were born spiritually dead. You were born spiritually dead. The word death means separation. When you're born, you are born with a spirit that is separated from God. And unless you get saved, that you're going to go to hell. He's going to have a body prepared for you in hell that fills everything your body can feel now but won't cease to exist and cannot escape. Now you think about that. That was the first death. When you get saved and you've got new life. The Bible calls it the new birth. You must be born again, Jesus said. But if you die without Christ, then there's the second death. That means you're forever separated from God in the lake of fire. Tormented day and night, Revelation 14, 11 tells us. So let me ask you this morning, which side of the great divider do you stand? Do you know that if you die today that heaven's your home? Then come to him if you're not sure. You say, I'm just not sure. My, my goodness. Why pray, play Russian roulette with your soul when you know in eternity there's no... One second after you pass into eternity, it's too late to do anything about it. So don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Get it right with God. Get it right with God today. Be saved. He'll save you if you come to him. Be saved today. Let us bow our heads.